This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Corsha Wilson is a food writer, culinary school grad, and host of HRN's A Hungry Society, a podcast dedicated to creating a more inclusive food world. We'll be discussing an essay she wrote for Eater earlier this year, A Critic for All Seasons, in which she explores what restaurant criticism would look like if it represented more diners like her. Welcome to the show, Corsha. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So I think it's actually so funny that um, the meat and three snippet we heard was that like it seems like everyone's become a food blogger fashion writer and I guess we'll get into this later but um let's start with the essay for for (laughs) those who have not yet read the essay can you kind of talk about the meal you had at the grill um the party-like feelings that you left with and why you felt feeling not only unsatisfied with the meal but kind of unsettled yeah so um the grill is this super fine dining restaurant here in New York City in Midtown um the decor is like a Trump chic, is how I would describe it. Lots of gold things hanging and like ornate displays of like vegetables and the garbage station. And it's very Mad Men. Um, and so it opened in every major newspaper and magazine outlet with the food section was like, you know, this is this is New York's best restaurant. This is returning us to, like, old New York. And this is the restaurant of the year. I think even um, Pete Wells at New York Times, like, named it New York's... The best restaurant in New York of that year. Um, and I went, and as a black woman, <laughs> I felt very uncomfortable. Like, Mad Men era dining? No, thank you. Like, I don't want to go back to that time. Um, but it was just, like written about in this like com- incredibly like glowing way by every publication and then I started to notice that each review each publication had you know a white guy reviewing it and so of course they felt comfortable and I sent out a tweet that was like have any women or people of color reviewed this restaurant like talked about what it feels like to be in a dining space that's modeled after like the 1950s Um, which is a time where, like, I wouldn't have been able to eat in the dining room. Um, And the answer I got was no. So um, for either I went and I had a meal that kind of confirmed my suspicions about, you know, ultra-fine dining, who it's for, and food criticism, 
because it's not diverse, because the people who are reviewing restaurants, like the group isn't diverse, then these kind of kinds of restaurants are lauded and other kinds of restaurants are kind of forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, the way you put it, Trump chic and Mad Men-esque, <laughs> um, very perfectly encapsulates the dining space. I have not yet been. Um, so what I'm getting from that is that it feels like there was a party there and a word or a sentence from the article is, um, you weren't quite sure what you were supposed to be celebrating. So can you talk about what that meant for you? What yeah. that felt like? Um, so something that didn't make it into the piece actually is that the first time I was there having a drink, it was filled with um, Wall Street types, but not on Wall Street. It was like Midtown broker type dudes. Um, and one of them was actually like vaping. Like <laughs> just straight up, just vaping at the bar, like packed bar. Um, and I remember thinking like, wow, the, like he feels comfortable enough to do that in this space, this like super fine dining space, and no one is checking him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if I pulled out a vape pen, all hell would break loose, right? Like, ma'am, get out of here. Um, but it just like, yeah, it was like this big celebratory thing of like, oh, we're in New York and this space is so ornate and this food is like recalling the 1950s. And it's like, I don't want to celebrate America in the 1950s. It was actually like a time of terror for mm-hmm. a lot of people that looked like me. So um, I don't want to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of reviews were like, this is great and this is what we need. And I felt a lot of like conflicted feelings about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess to telescope outwards, um, what did your experience kind of reveal to you about restaurant criticism or even fine dining as a whole? Yeah. it Like the dining experience was, I realized like afterwards as kind of in line with a lot of different fine dining experiences that I've had where like, even though I was there to like write the review and I, I paid for the meal, um, my husband, who was white, got handed the wine list and mm. handed the check, and uh, we got sat by the bathroom. <laughs> and, like, it it was just, you know, and being explained, like, basic things about, like, dishes and, you know, um, there was just the assumption that I didn't know what I was doing. The assumption that, like, I was out, a fish out of water, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the articles about you know, how your experience, if you're treated that way, is going to be very different than if you walk into that space and you're assumed to know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a food critic and you're supposed to be writing for everybody and you don't have any sort of, like, basis for an experience like that, then you're kind of leaving a lot of people out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really gets at what I felt when I read those reviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talked about um, Pete Wells' review, which kind of mentioned or focused a lot on nostalgia, the celebration of this kind of nostalgic, elusive feeling. Um, But what is that nostalgia for? I guess you kind of alluded to that before. And um, what does that nostalgia kind of require? Yeah, um, it's not nostalgic for me. Um, For me, nostalgia is like, nostalgic dining experiences are like a bunch of people around fried fish um, or around um, fried chicken or, you know, the experiences are very different. So if that's my baseline, then I'm going to go to a place like The Grill and view it very differently. Mm -hmm. Whereas if my baseline and my memories are of fine dining spaces or 
all white dining spaces is going to be very different. Mm-hmm. And so this is very important. And um, how then do you continue to persist or exist in a space like this when you see that critics are writing for a very selective audience that may not even exist mm-hmm. out there? I mean, I, I kind of have no choice but to exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but I think I, at first it used to... Well, at first I was very much trying to fit in line with what I saw. And so if, mm-hmm. you know, the critics were writing about the girl, I needed to go to the girl, you know, and try it mm-hmm. and have my own opinion. And then it was like... Mm, I don't know if I need to necessarily do that. Um, if it if the industry and the landscape is going to kind of ignore my own baseline, then do I need to put as much stock and value into what the industry deems worthy? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at and where that experience kind of put me. And for me, thinking about like existing in the space and like pushing it forward, it's like, well, if that's not my base, what is my base and how do I speak to people that have that same base as well? Mm-hmm. And so what do you kind of envision for the future of criticism? Well, I think that some very like positive things have happened. So like Soleil Ho in San Francisco and Tejal Rao in California for the New York Times, like, you know, these are two women of color who have been, you know, have been writing restaurant criticism and being very like forward thinking about it and not fitting into like the, the traditional mold of not just what we think of as, you know, who can be a critic, but also what criticism can look like. And I think that's the future is, you know, when someone writes a review, it doesn't have to be about the newest, like, French restaurant. It can be about, like, I was just reading um, Lagaya Mishan, like, of the New York Times. Like, she wrote this, like, gorgeous review of the soul food restaurant in the Bronx. And it, it reads like a Pete Wells review of a fine dining space. So mm-hmm. I think that's the future, is treating all of our dining spaces as if they're worthy of being, like, poked at and prodded and and understood and because they all are you know there's no hierarchy anymore mm-hmm. or at least in my mind there's not there might be to some people but mm-hmm. not to me yeah and so what does this restaurant criticism look like or how does it differ well I think that there's more people of color doing it um the restaurants being covered are more diverse uh the foods being talked about are more diverse um it reflects the landscape in which it exists. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I feel like I pick on Pete Wells a bit. <laughs> sorry, Pete. Um, sorry, Pete. Um, he's fine. Uh, we actually, we talk since that review. Um, the review I wrote of The Girl came out. He actually reached out, which was nice. Ooh. Um, but, you know, he reviewed The Freakin' Rican, which is a Puerto Rican restaurant. And, you know, there's a lot of Puerto Rican people in New York City. Mm. So yes, like Puerto Rican restaurants need to be covered as well. Like you're doing your readership a disservice if you're not covering the restaurants that speak to their baselines. Mm-hmm. Like you're in New York City, it's one of the most diverse cities in the world. Like restaurant criticism should be just as diverse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we actually, I want to talk about um, what Pete had to say to you. But um, <laughs> so. To backtrack, you talked about how you saw that so many people were reviewing the grill and how you kind of 
felt obligated to also review the grill. Um, what does it mean or why is it that one place will get reviewed by so many other people and be kind of given the same exact review? What, what kind of significance is there? Well, I think that it's like a couple of things. Like, So I'm not from New York. Um, I grew up in Maryland and like And then I lived in Boston for a bit. And just being here for, like, a few years, there is this, like, oh, this is the new hot restaurant. And everyone's trying to get into this one spot, right? Um, Which is just so weird to me because there's so many restaurants here Mm -hmm. that you could eat at that are really good. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is this, like, okay, I have to be there first. I have to try it. I have to, you know, have an opinion on it, especially if you're in food. Um, I think with publications, they feel that pressure, too, to, you know, know, the team behind Carbone opens up something like The Grill. That's been talked about for years before, prior to it opening, so everyone wants to get in there first. Um, And I think, you know, PR and marketing also impact that, like, who can afford to email these publications and say, hey, we're open, and this is our chef's pedigree, and... You know, it's all kind of the system of restaurants here in New York City where it's like, okay, this is what's hot right now. This is what's not hot. And everyone's trying to, like, get to the hot thing. And then they that fizzles out and they move on to something else. Mm-hmm. So what did um, Pete actually say in response to your article? Um, he was very kind. Um, and we actually, like, had dinner. Um, At the grill? No. <laughs> no, not at the grill. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed back, to be honest. Um, But no, like, we had dinner, and it was, you know, it was a very, like, cordial conversation. I was expecting to get cussed out, maybe. Mm. But, no, I'm joking. I don't think he would cuss me out. Mm -hmm. But, like, yeah, it was very cordial. Mm -hmm. What what did he respond to in particular? Um, He thought it was a very interesting article, and he, you know, he didn't take any offense to it, which I thought was Mm -hmm. awesome. Um, You know, he realized that it was just, like, a different perspective on dining, that... He, do, he doesn't have the same experiences that I do when I go into a dining space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just like kind of talked about the differences in those experiences and what that would mean in terms of restaurant criticism and mm-hmm. like feeling comfortable in spaces. Mm-hmm. Do you think it at all affected um, what he's going to review or how he might review something in the future? Um... The, the dinner or the piece? Um, your your conversation together. I don't know. I mean, I would hope so. But I think maybe it might be kind of... I just think the climate right now of the food world and food criticism kind of demands it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we're all kind of looking for more diverse opinions and more more like I guess we're tired of talking about French and Italian food so much Mm -hmm. delicious both of them (laughs) but like I think we all want a bit more in terms of like our our food writing and like our food media landscape in general Mm -hmm. so while there are amazing critics out there like Tejal and um, Soleil what about our current structure or system still supports a ton of like the tradition of white male critics that get to have the most say yeah, I think it's uh, a structure that still invests in and supports uh, mostly French and Italian food. 
I think if we actually and, and Japanese food, I think we give Japanese food like a ton of uh, reverence as well、mm-hmm. as French and Italian food. And if we gave the same amount of reverence to、um, Indian food or、uh, soul food, like my goodness, so, like it, it's funny if you read a review for like a soul food restaurant and then read a review for like a Japanese restaurant, just like the level of、um, respect given to the person cooking. Is totally different.、Uh, the language we use to talk about soul food is like we see it as simple, we see Southern people as simple.、Um, I just think that that is a big part of it. Like、um, the way that cuisines are labeled, intricate,、um, the chefs are you know, craftsmen, the chefs are artists, and then it's just you know, someone who's good at making X.、Mm-hmm. Like, I think we have to. Get rid of that, like that binary. Because、um, all these chefs are super talented and all these cuisines are very intricate and a combination of history and class. And it's just all this, like, it's all these different, like, influences coming together. So it's all very, like, skilled and craftful, and we should treat it like that.、Mm-hmm. This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the US, and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. And we're back. So, Korsha Wilson and I were just talking about how our current food media or restaurant dining system、um, still very much supports the highlighting of French and Italian cuisine, though that's slowly, slowly changing with some hopeful things happening, happening in the recent past. But、um, let's talk about Yelp and the advent of Google reviews or Yelp, I guess it's regional, which, which you support, or I guess it's、right. a, a personality thing if you're a Yelp or a Google review person,、um, and how that's kind of served to.、Um, Democratize restaurant criticism, or so it should have.、Mm-hmm. Um, do you think this is true? And how do you think user submitted reviews have kind of hurt or helped the dining landscape? Well, I think so. It has, does it help or hurt restaurant criticism? Yes and no to me.、Um, I do think that there's still a distinction between、um, a restaurant critic. Uh, at a publication or a newspaper, and someone writing a Google review. And that's not in terms of one is better than the other, but I think there's a lot more stock put into the restaurant critic at the publication. And I think even when you follow you know, investor dollars, they're not 
someone getting like a three or four star review in the New York Times is going to be able to open up a second restaurant hmm. quicker than someone who has, you know, like maybe a four star Yelp, you know, review. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is that distinction. I personally, just to be totally honest, I do look at Yelp and Google reviews. I think that in terms of, you know, the mom and pop restaurants, the smaller restaurants, which are the majority of restaurants in this country, uh, it does give you a good like overview and snapshot of what people like about a place, what they don't like, um, what they're ordering. Uh, you can see what the food looks like, uh, what the atmosphere is like. So I think it's super helpful in terms of like deciding where to spend your money and spend your dollar. Mm-hmm. But um, is it a detailed like? This is actually some of those Yelp reviews kind of do that. <laughs> yeah. they, I read they this do. one where the guy had developed his own scale. Oh. I believe the user's name was Ken, and it's the Ken scale. It's a 10 point system, and I think they're increments of 0.1. Wow. Yes. Yeah, see, you know, and there's going to be people like Ken that want to, you know, invest a lot of time and energy into their Yelp reviews, mm-hmm. and, you know, good on them. <laughs> um, but I. I know I do look at those reviews because I think that they're super fascinating in terms mm-hmm. of like a collective group of people, what they think about the spot. Um, am I going to put, am I going to use Ken's scale to like determine where I'm ordering from or where I'm taking a friend for their birthday? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So why is it that we trust Pete Wells' opinion more so than Ken? Mm. Well, I think that it's, um, it's kind of this... We, I know, I know for a fact that like Pete has um, has spent time like understanding the landscape of New York restaurants, like past and present, right? Mm-hmm. So when you read like a review, it's not just about the space as it exists today, but it's giving you context as well, right? So it's telling you. Uh, this restaurant used to be this space before or this chef was at this other place before or they're making this kind of food and these are kind of the characteristics of like this type of cuisine because if you're writing about like super regional Thai food for example like you need to know those characteristics in order to like get a really good idea if this is like a good version of that or not Mm -hmm. Um, Ken I, I'm just referring to all Yelp users all as, now as Ken. Ken now. Ken, now. Um, Ken, I don't know if he's done that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I don't. I think Ken is going into the restaurant and he's saying, "I like this as Ken," or "I don't like this as Ken." And here's my Ken scale. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like a, a critic is thinking about this restaurant in terms of the city, in terms of the city's dining landscape. So there's just like different. And, like, there's different, like, priorities in both of those reviews. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, too, don't take too much stock in Yelp and Google reviews. But if I am to play the devil's advocate, um, if we're trying to make the restaurant criticism landscape more diverse um, and to speak to the experience of more diners that look like us, um, why shouldn't we trust Ken? Because Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of reviews that start with, I'm Chinese, this is a very authentic Chinese restaurant. And so, in some ways, Ken... Chinese, whatever, um, is more well-learned or will understand the cuisine and the history better than Pete might ever, right? And so Absolutely. how 
will a user on Yelp or Google ever attain to Pete Wells status? Probably not. But how do we kind of bridge those two gaps? And is there a happy medium? Mm. I don't know what the medium is. So for me personally, like um, if I'm going out to a place or even like ordering delivery, I do look at Yelp or Google reviews because um, I think that they do give you like um, an average Mm-hmm. of an experience, either going to a spot or ordering in food. Um, I guess maybe look at it all if you want to get like an idea of a place mm-hmm. before you go. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that a big part of both the you know Yelp reviews and Google reviews and like food criticism in publications is service journalism pretty much, like telling you where you should spend your money and where you shouldn't or what you should spend your money on at a place and what you shouldn't. Uh, So I think both forms of reviews do that well. And I think if you really want to get a good sense, like maybe you look at both. Maybe Mm -hmm. you take it all into account. Because I I do agree that, you know, some of those Yelp reviews do have a bit more authority than someone at a publication might. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, I guess what is looming at the back of my head is the question of who determines taste or who are quote-unquote taste makers and um, why is it that we support restaurant critics and or trust restaurant critics so much? Mm. Well again I think it's that like level of expertise Um, but I think also I mean I think a lot of places maybe won't have a critic per se in the future I think restaurant criticism was kind of born of this time where there was a lot of monotony to the landscape in terms of like fine dining was automatically French or Italian. Automatically French and then maybe French and Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't think that that's the case anymore. I think that there's like an incredible like array of restaurants in America today, which is awesome and so exciting um so I think that as far as like the role of a food critic going forward I don't know if it's going to be as valuable as it was in say the 70s or 80s Mm -hmm. you know trying to navigate New York's many restaurants where you didn't have the the internet at your fingertips to help you decide Mm -hmm. um yeah I, I don't know if it will be as valuable as it was in like 20 years. Will there be a Pete? Well, he'll, he'll be alive. Um, <laughs> will there be a New York Times food critic? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, personally, uh, I, I think I will or have grown to trust a lot of people I follow on social media, mm-hmm. um, especially if I like their writing or their taste in other spheres. And there's so much power in someone like that going to a restaurant and just taking a very quick picture there and I think like that's at once very liberating but also terrifying and the amount of power that can be um, I I mean the power that is then given to a food celeb like that and so Mm -hmm. is that kind of where you see the future of criticism going? Oh yeah I mean you can follow like a direct line from like uh, critics Instagram accounts to what gets reviewed Mm -hmm. next and like what's on the best of and hot new restaurant lists. I mm-hmm. mean, it's an easy through line. And I think a lot of us 
in food media kind of do the same thing where we're on social and like this person went to this restaurant and mm-hmm. said it was good or this person went to this place and said that this dish you have to have it um, and so we're all kind of again like what we were talking about earlier kind of flocking to the same sort of thing mm-hmm. um, and for me it's like well what are the spaces that are doing really good food and they've been doing it for a really long time like not necessarily the newer spots but like the spots that have been open and like part of their community Mm -hmm. Um, I think it it needs to be more of like a mix of that not just like what's new what's hot what do I need to eat like I was about to say what's new what's hot what's right now (laughs) it just is so corny Um, but yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you actually talk about this in the Eater article you write about. Um, I think it's called Henry's, mm-hmm. right? Which is a restaurant that you identified as doing amazing things and is accurately representative of the community and the landscape, but is just not written up at all. And so what would it take for places like Henry's to get written up more? And um, yeah, how, yeah. Yeah, so sad news is the Henry is now closed. No! Yeah, the Henry is, oh is no longer, which is really sad uh, to me. But I think it takes more diverse food critics um, because, you know, the Henry felt really natural and, like, home to me. Mm-hmm. Um, music, food, clientele, um, it just felt like this is going out to eat in New York City and it actually looked like New York City mm-hmm. when I go out into it. So I think it just takes, like... It just takes like opening up the pool of like who we consider to be a restaurant critic and bringing them into the fold so that they can go to these spots and mm-hmm. say, oh, this feels good. And like, I know this, I have a reference point for this. It's not something foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in opening up that pool, who would you identify or look to and look, what is the new vetting process for becoming a restaurant critic then? I guess it's just a knowledge of food and restaurants, whatever food that is like I think you can get like a very good sense of um, a city or you know a landscape by like doing your research and also going out to eat Mm -hmm. to all kinds of places Um, I don't think that that is inherently belongs to one kind of person I think that that's true of anybody like you can learn about like a city's like restaurant scene and dining scene past and present if you really put the time into it Mm -hmm. and so now after the article um do you consider yourself a food critic and if so (laughs) no 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 no, no. um i I think a food critic is like one the schedule is grueling Mm. like going out to eat sometimes multiple times a night every night after work Mm. like i don't do that um, I think people would actually be depressed to know how little I go out to eat. <laughs> I cook a lot. Um, but no, I don't consider myself a food critic. Mm-hmm. And so when you, if, if you do go out to eat, um, what is your process for finding out what you want to go try out and what you want to support? Honestly, it's uh, talking to people I know mm-hmm. who I trust, like you said. Like, you know, where have you gone recently that was really good? Um, like, word of mouth. I do look at, you know what has opened recently that I might be interested in. Um, Yeah, I guess it also depends on what I'm going out for. Like, to meet up with friends or 
on a date with my husband or, you know, my mom's in town. Like, it, it depends on, like, what I need from the restaurant at mm-hmm. that moment. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of joked earlier that you're not allowed back at the grill, maybe. <laughs> um, right. But I might be banned. <laughs> so you went multiple times, right? Right. And, um, you end the article by saying you went and it was closed for a memorial service? Yes. So can you talk about that experience and what kind of... I don't know, sick irony that kind of revealed for you. Man, it was, that was a weird, so I thought I would only need like, uh, that, that was the fourth time um, I had gone and like, I thought I only needed three mm-hmm. times, right? And so I was like working on the draft, working on the draft and I emailed my editor and I was like, I'm, I'm going to go one more time and have a drink and just like, then it'll all come together for me. Cause it was like a lot of different things and like, honestly kind of like a (laughs) like nervous breakdown Mm -hmm. about wait why do I love fine dining like what is this Mm -hmm. um and I went and yeah they were like you know this is closed for a private event and it again had that same like kind of celebratory atmosphere even Mm -hmm. though like the garbage station uh the cold appetizer station was like closed um and it was like all these people in like fancy black gowns and whatever and yeah so I asked the hostess like what's going on she was like well this is actually a memorial service and as she was taking me to the pool which is attached to the grill and it's like their seafood restaurant Mm. where there's actually a pool in the (laughs) restaurant um because Manhattan um but it I didn't even get to like get into the fact that I sat back there I had like a $24 cocktail and Jeb Bush was sitting nearby, which made me really sad. Mm. Um, it was just like the oddest experience where, like, the pool, if the grill is a party, the pool is feels like a memorial service. Mm. Um, like, it was just like this very subdued atmosphere that was like kind of quiet and just very disorienting. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that really summed it up for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you talk about this kind of nervous breakdown that came with each draft. And so what were some of the, the questions or the doubts you had about yourself and about fine dining in general and how have you resolved them, if at all? Oh, goodness. Well, I don't know if I've resolved anything. I mean, like, you know, I realized, okay, what's so different about this experience that is different than any other fine dining experience because, I mean, um, Tejal actually wrote this great piece about uh, fine dining restaurants in California, like super high-end people travel to, um, and it's like 20-something courses, and you drink wine in wine country and pass out, I guess. Um, And, you know, the, the promise of fine dining, she says, is ultimate luxury of, like, we'll take care of you start to finish. Like, you don't have to worry about anything, like everything just kind of appears for you. And I think that that's very true. I mean, the grill is, like, supposed to make you feel like you're Trump. Like, you have the world outside of the window. You have, like, a flambe cart coming to you. You have, like, a cold martini. You have, you know, servers and back waiters waiting on your every need. There's a celebrity in the corner. Like, it's supposed to make you feel like you are a Trump. I don't want to feel like I'm a Trump <laughs> at all. Um, and so it was just like, well, if this is what fine dining is promising, and I, I worked in fine dining, I loved fine dining. Um, what did I love about it? And do I love it anymore? 
What did you love about it? Um, I think I loved the, when I worked in front of the house, I really loved getting to talk to people and, you know, they were coming in for like birthdays or anniversaries or I'm introducing my partner to my parents or someone just graduated. Like it was all these like different like celebratory occasions. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved that. And I got to meet so many different kinds of people and you kind of have to piece together, okay, what are they looking for? Do they want to be left alone? Do they want to chat with you? Do they want to chat with the chef? Do they want to see the kitchen? Like, it was just this great, like, puzzle every night. And you get to take care of people. Um, But as a diner, it's, like, a very different sort of experience. Um, Yeah, so I had to, like, kind of wrestle with all that. Mm -hmm. And so um, what is on your list to go to next to close? There's a place in the Bronx called Pear Tree Soul Food that's supposed to be really good that I want to check out. Um, They do, like, a fish fry, like, where they have, like, I think they do whiting, but I'm not sure, Um, that I really want to check out. That's not fine dining at all. It's, like, counter service. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I'm, like, lately it's been a lot of cooking and delivery as I work on things Mm -hmm. (laughs) not a lot of like going out uh, which is fine by me yeah you know yeah I feel like as you get more entrenched in this world you like don't want to set yourself up to be disappointed and it's expensive here it's expensive it's at least like you know a couple hundred dollars to go out to eat so Mm -hmm. it's like well I could spend 75 and cook a really great meal Mm -hmm. Or I could go out to eat and spend 200 And I do still love going out to eat. Like, the girl didn't take away my love of, like, <laughs> going out to eat. Um, but, you know, I did have to question, okay, well, why did I go to the girl? Why did I feel like I had to go and check it out? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been feeling that, like, push to go check out the new hot thing mm-hmm. way less than when I wrote that piece. Um, mm-hmm which is good. This feels like a therapy session. <laughs> like, do your shows normally feel like a little a bit. therapy yeah. session? I was about to say, like, this is a perfect way to end the episode and just tell listeners to not seek out the hot thing right. to cook more at home. Yeah, um, and believe in yourself. Yeah, and there love you go. Yourself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, Korsha, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.